Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Later. After the men in jumpsuits had driven up and begun digging the hole, Stevick would remember that the guy on the bench beside him had been gazing puzzledly into the cone of his large coffee and had tried to interest Stevick in the question of whether the cafe's brew aftertasted of soap or not. This day was gray, with heavy portents of rain. Not the best for sitting on the coffee shop's bench, but the interior of this cafe had become insufferable in all ways to Stevick. The shop's ambiance and fancy name, its well-programmed iPod and fake industrial chairs and tables and counters succeeding too completely, the room seething with overdressed, disheveled types, nerve-rackedly web-surfing or doing the real-world equivalent with eye orbits through the room, every last one of whom made him feel mossy, corroded, replaced. Add to that the danger of running into his ex, Charlotte, and he never even glanced within in hope of a seat. He didn't want one. Just black to go. He was an outdoor bencher. He'd take his chances with the others here, backs to the shop's window, and if rain drove them off, he'd have it to himself. Nor did he care to consider whether the coffee tasted of soap or not. He was getting his morning thrill on, his eye-opener. And this place, besides being on the right corner of the right block for him to stumble in, made a fine, joltingly strong concoction strictly from the addict's point of view. It could taste of lysergic acid or oysters for all he cared. Maybe every cup of coffee he'd ever drunk had tasted of soap, so he couldn't discern soap from coffee. Who knew? Stevick, meant to be job hunting, wasn't. Too generous severance had blurred his motivation in the months when it would have mattered. Now, season slanting to Memorial Day, the flag of Manhattan's office life was at half-mast until September. So Stevick was propped like a morning crow on that bench when the truck arrived. His front-row seat recalled to him memories of childhood puppet shows of gazing up at the slotted stage from which Punch Punch and Judy and their like protruded. The soapy coffee theorist was curled over some device now, brown knit, thumbs deep in a text message campaign, making Stevick the only witness to the disembarkment of the truck's occupants. They parked, apparently heedlessly, in the space in front of a hydrant, but without coming nearer than three feet to the curb. Cars slowed to pass. Stevick doubted that a garbage truck could have made it through. Surely a temporary placement, a compromise then. The vehicle was an ungainly, bolted iron thing, resembling some reconfigured laundry or diaper truck. Not massive like those used for transport of money, but solid enough in its way. Two men in jumpsuits popped out of the cab, and within a minute had orange traffic cones up to claim the territory that extended a few feet behind the truck, as well as between it and the curb. One contemplated the hydrant and then Riley topped it with a cone, 
which perched there like a dunce cap. It made an effective preemption of any indigenous neighborhood protest, an easy trump. The men in jumpsuits seemed to have some official function, even if their truck was unmarked. There's a bunch of seats up here. If some of you guys want to actually sit, I would take a time out for you to wend your way up and sit. I'm going to read the whole story. Do it. I'll turn my back. Oh, hi. Okay. Um, the men in jumpsuits seemed to have some official function, even if their truck was unmarked. The tools with which, with which the two men dug the hole were notably quiet and efficient. After first marking a square of asphalt with yellow spray paint, using a bandsaw of daunting size and intensity, they carved the black top along the lines of drying paint. At this point, Stevix might still have been the only eyes attending. Perhaps these activities had drawn distracted, unsustained glances from a passing postal worker or nanny. Certainly nobody emerged into the chill morning from the cafe's interior, where those not obliviously earbudded were likely hunkered in routine annoyance against the saw's zip, much as they'd be for a passing siren or the clunk of a truck's axle in a pothole. Nothing off the ordinary urban decibel scale. The soap complainer had wandered away while Stevik wasn't looking. The jackhammers, though, drew complaint. Several exasperated cafe denizens packed their laptops and muttered in the loose direction of the truck and its jumpsuited operatives as they fled the scene, like birds flitting to another treetop, and no more courageous. One of the cafe's counterpersons, a chubby guy in an apron, seeing business spooked, made a more forthright protest, even shaking his fist. But the small dimension of the task blunted his protest. By the time the jumpsuited pair had ignored the counterperson for a minute or two, minute smiles perhaps rippling their lips, or was this an effect of the device's vibration? They were shifting the jackhammers back into the truck in favor of shovels and picks with which they deftly cleared the hole of shattered black chunks. Stevik nodded consolation to the counterperson, who had, after all, poured his soapy coffee 45 minutes ago. What remained of it was cold. The excavation was complete by the time Stevik wandered by half an hour later, having picked up his dry cleaning from the Korean and used his own bathroom before circling back to the cafe. Rain still threatened, hadn't arrived. Stevik couldn't say why he was enthralled by the activities that had commenced with the truck's arrival. Some intimation, he supposed in retrospect, though it wasn't uncommon for him to buzz the cafe two or three times in a procrastinating morning. The hole was steep and accurate, hewing to the spray-painted plan still visible in two corners where the lines of paint meeting had pooled and blurred, an inverted phone booth of emptied dirt and rubble. Three fat, fitted planks lay stacked beside the hole, sized to make a rough cover, Stevik guessed. The hole's former contents had been heaped precariously at the curb. The hydrant wasn't likely to be back in commission too soon at this rate. The orange cone remained like an ill-fitted condom stuck on its head. The truck, however, was gone. And then it was back, 
jerking to a halt at the curb before him, as if responsive to Stevick's own presence, to his attentions. However absurd this notion might be, Stevick had conceived it. With an unhurried persistence, the jumpsuited men emerged again and opened the van's rear, then stepped inside to wrangle out what at first might have seemed another object, but then revealed itself to be a man, a human captive. The man was dressed in the same uniform, as though recently demoted from their company. But his skin, Stevick noted wearily, as if this fact, fact beckoned to outrage, he ought to feel rising within him, but didn't. His skin was darker than theirs. His head shaved, where their hair was intact. His two- or three-day beard rough, where theirs were, in one case, trimmed into a goatee, and in the other, shaved clean. So the jumpsuits, rather than suggesting equivalence between the three, framed difference. A cruddy cloth gagged the captive's mouth. Another bound his wrists in front of him. His eyes didn't trouble to plead as his captors led him to the fresh hole and lowered him within, taking care not to scuff his elbows on the crumbled lip. They'd measured well. The captive nestled just underneath the three fat boards when these were fitted over his head. One of the jumpsuited operatives stood atop the boards, testing their firmness with apparent satisfaction, while the other quickly loaded the cones into the back of the truck. Now, at last, the rain began to fall. How, Stevick began, then faltered, unsure of his question, how long are you going to leave him in there? The two could bother, barely be bothered to hesitate in their hurry for the shelter of the truck's cab. We're on installation and delivery, the clean-shaven one said as he assumed the driver's, the driver's seat. Pickups another department. Are we talking hours or days or weeks, Stevick said, locating, perhaps belatedly, some, civ some faint civic courage, a notion a notion that he'd absorbed certain duties as a local witness to this open-air procedure, perhaps by default, but no less legitimately for that. Besides, others inside the cafe might be watching him through the window. His question was perhaps a feeble one, but for anyone observing, the fact that he'd stood up from the bench and begun some sort of stalling interrogation could be seen as crucial, either in a deeper intervention to be conducted by more effective or informed members of the community, or in some later accounting of Stevick's comportment and behavior. I really didn't look at the schedule in this case, the driver said. But they're rarely installed for more than three or four days in a single location. Anything longer wouldn't be seen as humane, I suppose, asked Stevick. More like these measures simply aren't effective beyond a certain point. Listen, we've got to go. Those boards are in no way tight enough to keep the rain from falling on him, Stevick pointed out. By placing their hole so near the hydrant, they'd prevented a parked car from giving shelter to the hole. On the other hand, perhaps they'd spared the hole's inhabitant something terrifying at being doubly pinned by the low ceiling of a vehicle's undercarriage. Perhaps Stevick was guilty of overthinking. It was impossible to find a parking space in this neighborhood, so they settled on the obvious solution. That's generous of you to notice, citizen, the driver said. He gestured to the occupant of the passenger seat, the goateed man, who'd been sitting with his arms crossed and rolling his eyes, miming impatience. 
Now, this silent partner produced something from the floor of the truck's cab, a compact black umbrella, the inexpensive double-hinged kind you might purchase at a shoe repair shop, having ducked in during a gale. He handed it to the driver, who passed it through the open window to Stevik. This is why we're grateful you came along when you did, the driver said, nodding to indicate the hole. Don't be afraid to stand on top. It'll easily support your weight. With that, they were gone, and for the last time. Stevik never saw them again. The driver hadn't been misleading him when he alluded to the narrow specialization of their tasks. Now there was only the hole, its occupant, and Stevik with his own duties. For when freed by the truck's departure, he turned to face the cafe. For, excuse me, for when freed by the truck's departure, he turned to face the cafe. No one, in fact, was regarding him from the window, now streaked with rain and curtained by a dripping overhang. Stevik opened the umbrella. The hole was silent. Stevik could easily have gone home, but instead he stepped over, testing the soundness of the footing on top. There was little doubt he'd watched them work, and sheltered both himself and the sturdy boards from the rain as well as he could beneath the feeble rigging of black cloth and wire. In a lull, the aproned counterman stepped outside the cafe's doors for a cigarette break. He nodded curtly at Stevik, exhaled smoke rising into the rain. So you're in charge now, huh? He said. I didn't want to leave him completely alone, said Stevik. There had been no sound, barely a detectable motion from the hole beneath his feet, where the captive now sat braced, knees wedged in dirt. I wouldn't say I'm in charge in any wider sense, Stevik continued. I'm something of a stopgap or placeholder, really. I more than understand, the cafe employee said. We're in a similar situation. Just a gig between real jobs, that's what I keep telling myself. He tossed his fuming butt into the gutter, quite near. There's a million stories like yours and mine, he said. That's not what I was getting at, Stevik began, but uninterested, the countermen had returned inside. The cafe's population had never completely recovered from the jackhammer exodus. That, combined with the rain, kept Stevik's vigil a lonely one. He preferred it, actually. The usual early afternoon dog walkers passed by, hunched in tented plastic ponchos, Their smaller dogs, the terriers and dachshunds, sheathed in sleeveless plaid coats. But Stevik had always regarded the walkers as ships on a distant sea, some passing flotilla. Even on days of bright sunshine, they were too occupied with canine herding and the management of plastic-bagged turds to engage in the human life on the street. Though few other humans acknowledged him, Stevik liked to believe that he was still a participant in this mainstream whether his relation to the man beneath the boards qualified as a human transaction was another question. Toward evening, the rain tailed, though not enough so that Stevik lowered the umbrella. The cafe's clientele turned over. The tables were set for dinner, decorated with lit candles, menus in place. The staff even switched off the Wi-Fi in order to chase out the most tenacious of the afternoon Googlers. Others of Stevik's neighbors the professionally dressed, beleaguered rush-hour subwayers, slavers in financial offices, trudged past the corners, the corner with their own umbrellas. Though Stevik always thought of them as upright sheep, some were surprisingly bold in their muttering now. What did you say? Stevik shouted back. You heard me, friend. You're lowering property values for the rest of us. 
Not in my backyard, eh? Stevick said. Boy, when something like this arrives in your midst, you learn pretty fast who's in this neighborhood, you yuppie. Stevick spoiled for a fight, feeling now all the insurgent defiance he ought to have summoned for the diggers of the hole. But what was done was done. Defense of what should never have been in the first place had become Stevick's province. You artists need to learn up and, excuse me, you artists need to grow up and learn the difference between an installation piece and a hole in the ground, the man sneered. Surely Stevick's age, or younger, yet dressed like Stevick's grandfather, he added, slack ass. Stevick was incensed. There's a man in this hole. Don't bore me with your disgusting personal information. It's not a personal situation, you fucker. Roll up and die, grubby. Yar! They charged at each other with umbrellas outheld. Stevick feeling like he'd abandoned his station, but unable to stem the urge to gore the man on the sidewalk and see him plead for mercy in the rain. Yet the two men essentially missed, failed to engage, the broad opened umbrellas merely grazing in a rubbery wet shudder as they passed. The single thrust having apparently exhausted his neighbor as much as it did Stevick, the man regathered his briefcase tightly beneath his elbow. I need to go pay the nanny, he murmured as he slunk off. (laughs) Stevick retreated to his task. It was night, and inside the cafe, the menus at several of the tables had been taken up. Wine poured, little plates delivered by the time another specialist made contact with Stevick. He wasn't, as Stevick might have hoped, a sentry arriving to relieve Stevick of a duty that, now that he contemplated it, he had to admit was self-assigned. Rather, the jumpsuited man, a sturdy, almost fat one this time, with heavy black-rimmed eyeglasses and a Yankees cap shielding him from the rain, appeared to be some kind of inspector, charged with ensuring the rightness of the site and recording in cryptic shorthand with a ballpoint pen on a clipboarded sheet certain impressions. The man double-parked his car, the blinking hazard lights of which gave clear evidence of the passing nature of his visit, and suggested to Stevick a long itinerary of random checks still ahead of him. He then politely asked Stevick for assistance in drawing aside the cover of planks. Stevick, in turn, extended the umbrella to help protect this operative's clipboard while he wrote. The captive, Stevick noted with relief, didn't appear any more or less uncomfortable than when he'd first been lowered into his hole. He stood as if to acknowledge the inspector's attentions, but he didn't glance upward, perhaps not wishing to incur incur rebuke, or perhaps he had merely grown incurious about what were, for him, routine operations. When the inspector went back to his car and returned bearing a wax paper cup with a straw and a pair of plastic-wrapped sandwiches, Stevick understood that he intended to feed the man in the hole and saw also that the captive had at some point spat the dirty cloth from his mouth so that it now encircled his throat like a necklace. Probably it had never been secure to begin with, and the captive had not wished to embarrass the men who dug the hole by flaunting their ineffectual knotting skills. The inspector lowered both the cup with the straw and half a sandwich to within range of the captive's mouth, and the man in the hole quietly and efficiently fed and drank. Stevick considered the fact that the captive could have cried out at any point and had chosen not to. Perhaps he learned that it led only to more punishment, if punishment was the right word. 
Stevik had begun to realize that he ascribed a certain strength, a gravity and authenticity to the man in the hole, or perhaps to the hole itself, with which he wished to be associated, as in the sense of a shared undertaking. The passerby with whom he'd crossed umbrellas had been, in a manner, right. This was a kind of personal situation. Sivik helped the inspector replace the wooden planks over the hole, then gratefully accepted the gift of the second wrapped sandwich, which turned out to contain pleasantly peppery chicken salad, albeit on soggy white bread. Stevik had been hungrier than he realized. Before departing, the inspector went back to his car one last time, returning now with an olive green duffel, which he chucked gently to the edge of the hole, just beside Stevik. What's that? said Stevik. Standard issue, the inspector explained, obscurely. It'll be there when you need it. He offered Stevik a quick salute and was off. It was only after the cafe had closed for the night, the chairs overturned on the tables, that the rain ceased completely, leaving Stevik with the question of whether his shift here ought to conclude. He shook out and shuddered the umbrella and had just reached for the enigmatic duffel when he was greeted by the sound of his own name in the familiar voice of his ex, Charlotte. It was perhaps inevitable that she'd pass by if he camped out here all day. In another lifetime, which was what even yesterday seemed to be after this present occurrence, he might have been guilty of doing exactly that. As it happened, he'd overlooked completely the possibility of her wandering past. Charlotte was dressed and scented for a night on the town, clacking in her heels towards the subway entrance, most likely to undertake her usual carousel of Stevick's former favorite bars in the company of his lately out-of-touch friends. Well, now look at you, she joshed, keeping busy as usual. Stevik guiltily withdrew his hand from the duffel bag and stood alert to indicate his vigilance. Though now, rain cleared, umbrella folded, it was hardly evident what his duties were. He'd always had to straighten his posture in Charlotte's presence. His height and perfect carriage, a kind of, excuse me, her height and perfect carriage, a kind of warning or rebuke to him. And now he found himself wishing that she'd step off the curb down to his level. The three planks that covered the hole were too expertly flushed to the asphalt to be any help to him. There's a man in this hole, Charlotte. It was the second time he tried to even the field by stating this absolute truth, almost as if he needed to hear it himself to believe it, though he'd been presiding there all day. He wanted acknowledgement of his effort, but first he had to establish the basic situation. Sure, Charlotte said, I've heard of this sort of thing. I guess I'd heard of it too, said Stevik, though it's different to have it right in front of you. Still, I guess it has to be somewhere. True enough, Charlotte said. I just hadn't pictured you getting involved. But by your logic, I suppose someone had to step forward. Stevik couldn't really improve on this sentiment, so he let it pass. So what's in the bag, she said. Nothing was lost on Charlotte. He had to give her that. Uh, More sandwiches, I suspect. Stevik said, surprising himself with this guess. Should these be called rations or provisions? It depended on who was eating them, he supposed. They're not bad, he said. If you like chicken salad, take one if you're hungry. Charlotte had by this time poked inside the bag, assuming her usual privileges in regard to Stevik's boundaries. And she pulled out a plastic-wrapped jumpsuit, identical, except for its virgin state, to those worn by the operatives and by the captive below. 
There appeared to be four or five of these stacked within the small duffel. You're hired, Charlotte exclaimed. You've been promoted from a temp position to staff. Stevick found himself pleasingly able to ignore her goading. In many ways, Charlotte, like much else, was receding from view. The new conditions made irony a luxury. Was he meant to hoard the jumpsuits for his own use or to recruit other operatives from the neighborhood? Or, for that matter, were they meant for future incarcerees? Stevick considered the possibility that he'd eventually be fitted for a hole himself. The beauty of the uniform was that it settled nothing. Do you want to see him? He asked Charlotte, and immediately regretted a question that seemed inappropriate, even somewhat craven on his part. He knew only after he'd said it that he would never again let himself use the man in the hole as a token or a bargaining chip. He was a person. Charlotte's cavalier reply felt predestined. No thank you, she said. I should go, I'm running late. But it's really good to see you doing so well, Stevick. Her voice was like a pat on a baby's downy skull. The hint of tenderness cloaking Charlotte's dismissal disgusted Stevick. Talk about your passing connections. Stevick felt closer after a single day to the man in the hole, though they'd exchanged not a word. As he watched Charlotte make her way up the street, Stevick experienced only relief that she'd refused his suggestion. To pry up the planks when he had nothing to offer was a small indignity he'd spared the captive below. The last thing Stevick wished to do, after all, was annoy him with inessentials. Success in an endeavor like this one lay in the details. Stevick was certain he was going to do a good job. That's it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So to complete our ritual transaction, you guys have to ask me questions now. And then I will sign some, some books for you and, and also greet all my lovely old friends who've turned up. It's really nice to see everybody. Um, so I'm stalling to give the person who wants to be first a chance to get ready to be first. Hi. Great. Um, uh, this collection of short stories, do you uh, set out to write short stories? Mm. Or how do you uh, determine, you know, this idea is a short story or is this one I can expand the whole novel? Great. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I started out um, wanting to write both short stories and novels, and I started out trying to uh, when I was a teenager. And, you know, both were coming out really bad for a long time. But um, I was really determined that. I, I loved both things, and I would I would keep keep on trying. And um, also, you know, when you're a novelist, but you're not published, and you're you know, no one cares. The short stories give you something to send out into the world as these, you know, little hopeful uh, flares. And you know, eventually, that was what I published first. So I was a short story writer in a way before I was a novelist, and I always felt like I wanted to keep faith with it. Um, once you do have some, some luck as a novelist, uh, which I've had a lot of, uh, the world stops necessarily you know, encouraging your short stories that much because the publisher doesn't really know what to do with them. Um, and um, there are so few places to send them. Uh, but I always felt I was going to keep at it. And I never was... Um, I, I've never for a minute wondered whether an idea was meant to be one or the other. They just come... 
uh, wanting to, you know, with a proportion very much built into them. Just as I like know when a novel is going to be a long novel or or a short one, I can really feel with the first flush of an idea. I can usually feel a, a really organic relationship to the proportion or scale of the thing, and. Um, um, so I've tried to just keep writing them. So uh, this is about 10 years worth, you know, this thin little book is about 10 years worth of my keeping that promise. And it's essentially, I vowed I would write, like, stop what I was doing, teaching or writing a novel, and write one short story I cared for every year. And and the last time I had a short story collection was 10 years ago. So this is like um, me just keeping the faith with that form and that practice. Uh, even, even though, you know, I think my publisher is only tolerating my spending time this way. <laughs> is that, did I answer your question? Thanks. Hey. How long does it take you, how long does it take you to write? Yeah, well, there are a few that took me a year to write, actually, in, because I would get stuck. Or uh, The last story in this, in this collection, uh, Pending Vegan, which is also the most recent of the stories in the collection, was about a year in, in the making, which was weird for me, but I felt like it was it all counted. Like I was solving things very, very slowly in this story. Um, more often, you know, uh, like the one I read you, I think when I f- got hold of the idea and found a, a, a voice for it, you know, found a, a language that um, I could initiate the story in. I probably spent, you know, th- three or four or five weeks getting it down on on paper, and then um, there might have been some editorial stuff later on. Um, but I can usually uh, hope to write a short story in a month. That seems that seems like I can hope for that. And Beattie used to write one a day. Uh, I mean, you know, they're just fast people and and. Medium fast people, and I'm 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 only medium. Hey. Do you see the kind of dismissive attitude of publishers towards short stories changing all now? I don't know. I mean, I think that there's sort of a permanent, you know, kind of permanent rehearsal of this crisis of, uh, oh, no one cares for their short story, and then you have some people who have this amazing, defiant career and do a great job with it, and you know, um, but you know, I think. It, you know, Laurie Moore or, or, or uh, right now Kelly Link is like a famous short story writer. Uh, we have them and, you know, um, and, 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 right, and, and of course they, they suffer the reverse uh, bias that everyone says, well, their novels aren't, you know, too bad about their novels. Often I think that they're, they're, they're very good at both, but somehow you only get to be one thing or the other. So I think Alice Munro's publisher probably is really thrilled when she has a new story collection and kind of like, you know, responds to her novels with sort of like, okay, I guess we'll publish that, Alice. Right. There's, I mean, I don't know who, who, who got to like be uh, taken as, as, you know, um, both. Like John Cheever, everyone was sort of condescending about his novels. He's the greatest short story writer. So, I, you know, I think it's okay. It's just the situation. It's like a kind of, you know... People would be annoyed if 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 you got uh, got to be both probably. <laughs> Donald Antrim's n- little novels are good, yeah, but they're like long short stories, aren't they? Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, he's he's a really good writer. He's great. Yeah. Um, more more questions. Will. I have a odd question, but uh, like that was a really great 
assert as political power you know, of, of the president. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm just imagining as you're writing it, you're kind of tracking the existential situation of this character, you know, the main character. Yeah. In regards to this thing happening, yeah. the self-consciousness, he's a social being with this in this real particular setting with a coffee shop. Yeah, much too loud social radar for so po- pointless nuances in that neighborhood, yeah. writing it, are you like this? Are you tracking his kind of like inner psychology on one hand, and then I just noticed that there were these kind of uh, literary resonances, uh, of, like in the penal colony and some of Kobo Abe, and I think the ones I've yeah, yeah, those are those are I mean those are things that I revered when I was uh, trying to become a writer. You know, stuff like Kobo Abe and and Kafka formed my like holy image of what I I should be seeking to attain, and I don't presume that I that I I got to there. But I'm certainly if you hear hear echoes <laughs> of those guys, I was um, I was I would embrace that because I'm sure I was at some conscious or semi-conscious level I was uh, wanting that wanting to bring that kind of magic into the game. Yeah. You notice the writers like in a particular scene or thing. Starting to like, oh, well, that's like so and so. Yeah. Saunders might have a. Do you, do you let that happen or do you move away from it? I don't ever fuss over whether I'm uh, echoing stuff or, or um, it'd be, you know, I, I, I usually like to be inspired by things. Uh, so, and but then I can also have nice surprises where I realize I'm writing in relation to another object a, a, a you know it might be a song or a movie as 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 much as a story and uh that that's giving me energy that I wasn't even noticing that I was drawing on um and that seems all okay to me yeah yeah thanks will hi um what was if there was any inspiration for uh, as she talked about the oh thank you um yeah so that's a long time ago that's my uh third novel and um I wrote it. I wrote it in my twenties. Um, I was well. I mean, that, I can really name some very specific things. In a way, it's a good question to follow this last one because I was infatuated with uh, Don DeLillo at the time, and I was trying to figure out something about his voice. And there were two books of his, uh, White Noise, which everyone knows, and End Zone, which very f- many fewer people know. They're both campus books, and I was living in Berkeley, and I had this kind of fascination with the campus satire, which was a, a, in a way it was a zone I could only dream my way into. I dropped out of college. I certainly wasn't what I am now, which is a professor. I had no real angle on it except through reading campus novels. And uh, I also read, at that same moment, I read John Barth's uh, first or second novel, The End of the Road, which was a transfixing book for me. And so I, I, I started wanting to do something Eccentric with that setting, and I guess I was thinking about Berkeley. I was dating graduate students at the time, but I was a bookseller. And um, and at the same time, that book comes very much out of wanting to be like I had this wish, very much like that one I was presuming to have to be. I want to be Kobo Abe or I want to be Kafka. I wanted to like I was crazy for Italo Calvino at the time, and that's the reason there's an Italian physicist in the book. Is I wanted I wanted the book to be like. Uh, a Italo Calvino story about 
someone falling in love with a black hole. It was very strongly influenced by both these relatively, you know, um, uh, mundane and, you know, not fantastical American campus novels. The language was fantastical in Barth and DeLillo, but not the setting. And Cosmic Comics, where uh, Calvino's writing these crazy magic stories about people's relationship to science where there's always falling in love with the universe or you know or with the moon or with a dinosaur it was it was like a science textbook textbook turned into a series of love sonnets and so i i wrote one of those calvino love sonnets but in the voice of don delillo and john barth on an american campus that was where the book came from pretty much exactly uh, thanks for remembering that book yeah um, hi. That thing has fizzled out. Yeah, like so many other uh, phantom movie projects. Some I always think there should be like a, a a multiplex where all the unmade movies from my books would be playing, and you could go and you could like you could really you could go see like the Leo's Carax version of uh, Girl and Landscape, and you could see the Cronenberg as you climbed across the table, and the Darren Aronofsky uh, Fortress of Solitude. Um, those were all things that were, uh, David Lynch was fooling around with Amnesia Moon at one point, which didn't get it, didn't even get as far along as Cronenberg's thing. But I got to go to David Lynch's house once, which was great. So, but somewhere those those movies are playing. Uh, we just have to find our way there. Yeah. Hey. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a funny thing. Well, so, you know, actually, someone once told me. Uh, that there was a really cynical formula. You put the best story in the collection first, you put the second best last. <laughs> and then it doesn't matter what else you do. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, this actually um, is almost chronological. The earliest of these stories is the first one in the book, and the most recently written, which I mentioned before, is Pending Vegan, is the last in the book. And I also kind of think they might be the two best, but then again, I love the one I just read. So, I mean, I care for them all. But... Um, once I had the combination of thinking they were both like pillars, really strong poles in the book, and realizing that one was the earliest and one was the, the last, I slotted the rest of them in more or less chronologically. I mean, I might not even remember. I might be wrong. But they feel like they're pretty much in chronological order, of, of the writing, that is. Yeah. People don't read them straight. You know, they don't read the book straight through anyway. It's really weird to think it matters because if I, if you're like me, you read a short story collection by like finding the one you're interested in and then finding another one, right? So the the order is going to be defied, whatever order you put them in. You, hi. Um, I was just wondering, are you working on anything? Are you working on another novel? Yeah, I've got a novel in progress that I. Yeah, I can say a couple of things. I started it in um, in Germany uh, around this time last year. I was on a sabbatical in Berlin. And um, it's, uh, you know, in Dissident Gardens, for the first time, I really dared to set brief, brief bits of, of a book somewhere other than, I mean, I think I'm a very American writer, and I just couldn't have done it until Dissident Gardens, I have, like, a, a short chapter in Nicaragua, and I also have this weird series of letters from Dresden. So they're sort of, you know, it's an epistolary chapter, but it sort of com- comes from another place and I then I realized that I was really interested in that and I was in Germany and I so I'm writing a book that's about this uh, kind of self-invented transatlantic figure who uh, this the book is is set in Berlin and in Singapore and then in Berkeley and uh, he comes from Berkeley but he hates it he wants to be 
He want, kind of wants to be Jeremy Irons or something. He wants to be this sort of, or, or James Bond. He wants to be this man of, of, of uh, international mystery. He's a backgammon hustler um, who he makes his living beating rich men in backgammon clubs. But, uh, but then something forces him back to, to California. That's, that's what I could say. Yeah. Hey. You talked about uh, writing, you're being a bookseller while you're writing novels. Now you're also writing novels. So I'm wondering if you can talk about sort of the work ethic that goes into both sort of your day job and also yeah. your writing. Well, I mean, I I really love to write, so I I find time for it because it's 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 my keenest keenest and most reliable pleasure over the course of my life is just being with these projects and you know, trying to figure them out. Uh, I mean, it, there's discomfort in that space too, but mostly I, I'm there and I'm, I think I, you know, when people want to know why I've written a bunch of books, it's because I like to do it. So, you know, you, you, I also like other things. I watch a lot of movies. I find ways, even with kids and being a professor or, you know, whatever, having to go to the dentist, I like to see a lot of movies. So, uh, you know, I never really think of it in terms of work ethic. There's this uh, idea of, like, discipline as if you're, like, standing beside yourself with a whip or something. And I don't really think of it as more habituation than discipline. It's like, I like it. I learned how I could arrange my life around this task and this practice, and I just indulge it a lot. Uh, I'm making it sound like masturbation. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and there's anyone making art is doing other things, too, whether it's to make a living or just because life comes in. You know, I always think it's the image of, like, clearing everything out is really strange because you, you can't do that. Uh, so, you know, I used to have, uh, I used to be able to go out dancing and, and take drugs and still write novels and work in a bookstore. Now I'm a professor and I have two little kids who are kind of like the dancing and drugs. <laughs> and I write novels, you know, but you're always pushing some things to one side, right, uh, to do other things. So one or two more. I know you guys are on your feet, so that might be tiring, but I, um, I'm loving these questions. Thank you. Uh, if there is one or two more. Hey. When you were talking about the order that you pick your story, yeah. it kind of reminded me of like when you are making a mixed CD or mixtape. Yeah. Um, last time you write, <laughs> last time you, um, or one of the times you were here, you were talking about the talking heads. I was just yeah. you have a story about like a mixtape you made for someone or one that someone gave to you. Mm. I love playlists and mixtapes. I, f I fiddle with them all the time. And I, I mean, I used to, like, spend all this time, the, the tech of, like, lining up two cassettes to dub from one to the other, really horrible-sounding glitches between the songs and stuff. Um, and now it's so weirdly easy. It feels like it doesn't count, but I still do it. I burned a CD to play at a, a, a friend's party the other night. I mean, I still have the, like, even though my laptop doesn't want to have a... a disk drive attached to it anymore. It's like my laptop is telling me to stop doing this. Uh, I, f I found an external disk drive so I can burn mixes. Um, but I don't know what kind of story to tell you about it. It's just like it's really, it pleases me. It, and that it's part of that curatorial uh, pleasure, you know, of arranging things. It goes to me in a way together with like um, finding books I love or, or having shelves in a house or working in a bookstore. And yeah, you get a little a little uh, jolt of that pleasure when you put 
a story collection together or, or one of the essay collections. I've done it with essays as well. Excluding things too. Figuring out, oh, this one isn't good enough or, or it's good but it doesn't fit. It doesn't bridge. doesn't make a right balance here. You know, there are some stories I like that didn't make it into collections and essays I, I'm proud of that didn't because they, they like didn't fit the mix and that's where it reminds me the most of. You know, like this is a great song but I cannot make seg around it. I can't, I can't it won't work, right? Yeah. Um. Hey. Hey. Uh, Pimping Vegan. I love that uh, title. Thank you. Yeah, well, maybe. We, aren't we all? Um, I, yeah, the, the character in the story, I won't say too much because it's in the story, but he has uh, not got the courage of his convictions. In his head, he's renamed himself Pending Vegan because he's, he's, he feels that uh, he knows that he has to be, he's destined to be. It's the only thing that's possible, but he's like rampantly eating meat in the story um, and uh, yeah I mean which is in a way it's like that wor- world of knowing what we should be but not being it you know uh, it, this, the story has, a, has two layers of that because he takes his kids to sea world which is a sort of abysmal you know it's like hell on earth but let's take the kids you know like we just sustain our cognitive dissonance so powerfully in that situation right and um, yeah so it's sort of it's that yeah is a good place to stop. Thank you all very much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.